0: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick
1: Beeman. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Boards. I'm Amy Chatel, your host for today. And right now we're running an Addiction Medicine for Medical Students series. And so the topic for today is going to be Neurobiology of Addiction with Dr. Jamie Allen. Just a quick rundown on who she is. Dr. Allen is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at Michigan State University. She received her PharmD from Ohio Northern University in 2005, and she maintains an active pharmacist license in three states. She received her PhD in pharmacology from UNC Chapel Hill in 2010. In addition to training medical students, Dr. Allen has a research laboratory that uses C. elegans as a model organism to study neurobiology. Dr. Allen is a member of the National Boards of Osteopathic Medicine National Faculty, and she is an item writer and reviewer for national board examinations. She is passionate about addiction medicine, and currently, she's funded by the State of Michigan Health and Human Services Department to develop an addiction medicine curriculum for medical students. So without further ado, welcome to the Inside the Words podcast, Dr. Allen. Thanks for having me, Amy. I'm really excited to be here with you all today. Well, we're super excited that you're here. This is kind of like a buzz topic and just, I mean, something that I think medical students and other medical care providers really you know, they're kind of inundated with, they see it kind of day to day in their practice. And it doesn't matter what field you end up practicing in, you see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's really important that we kind of, you know, cover these topics. And even if it's not on like necessarily the next board exam, like it's going to be incredibly important for just your day-to-day practice. And I'm pretty sure that these questions are going to start showing up on board exams as well because, you know, the trends, typically whatever is popular in medicine, a couple of years, um, typically show up on boards, so.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So anywhere from, you know,
1: three to five to
0: seven years and the opioid epidemic is currently overtaking many areas of the United States. And so um, that's gonna drive some of um, the addiction medicine questions that you'll see on the boards in the future.
1: All right, see, you know, just trying to stay current. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, one quick thing. So, we're going to dive kind of right into our questions and then we'll kind of cover some bigger areas of like broad content since this is one of our more overview themed um, podcasts on this topic. Uh, so, for starters, our questions today are from Stat Pearls. Thank you all very much for letting us use your uh, questions. Um, so, I like to read the kind of the question first. Um, and then go back to the stem and then read the question again so our listeners kind of understand kind of where we're going with the question. (laughs) Sounds fantastic. That's a great way to break it down. So given the chronicity of his addiction, where would you expect changes in the patient's brain and what neurotransmitter would be involved? A 32-year-old male with opioid use disorder presents to the emergency department with chest pain radiating to the left arm. Pain is rated at 5 out of 10 and described as tightness. Currently, he is not in any pain and vital signs are stable. For his addiction, he is currently receiving methadone prescriptions with occasional relapses for over a year. Given the chronicity of his addiction, where would you expect changes in the patient's brain and what neurotransmitter would be involved? Choices are one, occipital lobe and glutamate, two, temporal lobe and norepinephrine, three, prefrontal region and dopamine, for Mernicki's area and dopamine.
0: Well I think this is a really great question. And you can see that we're asking, as you pointed out, what neurotransmitter and what part of the brain. So you can really attacking the question, you can start by figuring out answer choices based on brain region or figuring out answer choices based on neurotransmitter. I would attack it based on neurotransmitter. Uh, you can really rapidly wean out two of these because our big neurotransmitter that's going to be evolved, not that there aren't others, but our main player is going to be dopamine. And so that's going to take out, if you will, answer choice one or answer choice A and answer choice two or answer choice B because those have glutamate and norepinephrine. And we could talk through um, the areas too as well. The areas don't match up at all either. But that brings us down to the last two choices, which will be prefrontal region and dopamine and Wernicke's area and dopamine. So dopamine is our correct neurotransmitter there. And you're asked to be differentiate between the prefrontal region and Wernicke's. So you might remember Wernicke's from aphasia. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And this is in the temporal lobe and it's responsible for comprehension of speech. So this really doesn't play any sort of role in any of our addiction um, phenotypes. But the prefrontal region, this is involved in predicting consequences, impulse control, planning for the future. And so this is absolutely important in addiction. So the correct answer is the prefrontal region and dopamine.
1: Yes, excellent. Yeah, and that was wonderful reasoning you're spot on, you know, you, even if this episode wasn't themed about addiction, you could pretty quickly see that this question was about addiction. And then going from there, like, what do we know? Baseline about addiction. Like we know that it's really involved with our dopamine, which is, you know, um, kind of our motivation Mm -hmm. neurotransmitter. And, um, then it's really kind of going from there. Like, okay, what do we, what else do we know about addiction? And if you didn't get that right, for some reason, like, this is how we're going to learn, right? That's what this is all
0: about. Exactly. And even if you didn't know which areas were involved in addiction, you could look at the regions. So you have the occipital lobe. This is visual processing, Mm -hmm. temporal lobe, auditory information. And Wernicke's area is speech as we covered. So that rules out all those three. You're left with a prefrontal region. You could attack the question from that way as well. Absolutely.
1: And so I guess one thing to note about this question. So it did mention something about chronicity of his addiction. And so one thing that we have learned about addiction is as addiction goes on for longer and longer, the prefrontal lobe is like, or the prefrontal region is like even more impacted. And so there's like lower levels of dopamine or dopamine response in that region. And mm-hmm. so it basically requires more and more dopamine as time goes on, um, to function and to make, mm-hmm. you know, good decisions or like decisions that you, like your brain can actually make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see how addiction would kind of affect this region most <laughs> because, or I would say the most, because you go from like, okay, so say like you need 80, Uh, Like we'll just say there's 80 dopamine molecules Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what you need to make decisions throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And then when you're you're using something like cocaine or that's giving you like a much higher dose of dopamine. Mm -hmm. And then your brain gets used to that and it tries to almost protect itself from Mm -hmm. that like high. And so it reduces maybe the amount of dopamine receptors or how much dopamine it's even producing. And then that just goes on and on and on in time. And then your brain's like, hey, I need dopamine to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And the only way you're going to get that dopamine to make those decisions is to follow the thing that has kind of pushed your brain to need that higher and higher amounts of dopamine to make decisions.
0: Yeah. And you're getting at a really important concept, Amy, because you're getting at desensitization and tolerance. And this is a really important concept across pharmacology, but especially in addiction medicine. And so, particularly, your, your dopamine and dopamine receptors are going to be downregulated in response to this excess dopamine. And what's going to happen is the patient is going to need more and more and more and more of the drug to get the same response. The euphoria, typically, is what the patient is chasing. And so, they're going to use more and more and more. And then, the more um, drug you use to get the desired response... The more likely you are to experience an adverse event. So this is where you can get into really acute danger trying to quote unquote chase that high, escalating your dose. And then, of course, your risk for side effects and toxicity goes up.
1: Right. Which, you know, makes complete sense. Just, I mean, it's an unfortunate (laughs) sense. The nature of addiction and why people do what they do. I mean, Mm -hmm. so you kind of wonder, like, oh, how could somebody steal? from their mother's wallet or from their friends to, you know, kind of fuel these behaviors. But I think you have to think about it as like, okay, so this is the behavior. Like this is a behavior Mm -hmm. as a result of the fact that they're craving dopamine because Mm -hmm. they have pushed their dopamine receptors so far and have minimized Mm -hmm. them. So they're really like, they're doing it for survival. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not like, I don't think it's any impact on, who they are as a person, as a human person, like they're not trying to do these things to spite someone or to hurt someone and they don't want to hurt anyone, but they're hitting a survival threshold almost. Like they're saying like, their brain is saying like, I need this to make decisions. I need this to feel okay. Um, And so there's a biochemical basis for why people are doing or acting the way that they're acting. and so it's, it's it's nice to know these things. Like, okay, so here's the biochemical basis of why they have that behavior.
0: Yeah, that's a, absolutely a great point. There's a genetic predisposition. There's been studies that have shown that genetics can play a component. And everyone wants dopamine. That's the reason you grab another cookie or watch another episode on your TV. So substances and misuse upregulate this dopamine, but other things like sugar and even binge watching and video game playing have been shown to upregulate dopamine. So it's not like people who have problems with drug misuse, like you said, they're not terrible people. They're not trying to hurt anybody. They're just more susceptible to dysregulation in the system than say someone without a drug misuse problem is. Well, we all have this release of dopamine in response to certain activities. Exercise is another one of them. And we're all sort of, we all like that, um, but whether or not we can keep that in check, both by our biochemical pathways, but also through support systems, socioeconomic status plays a big role, access to healthcare and providers and social stigma, that all plays a huge, huge role. in whether or not this can be quote unquote checked or whether it gets out of control and becomes pathological at some point.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's interesting you know, it's just it just shows that, you know, we're not just we're not just our biochemicals. Like there are so many things that make us people and human and the social systems that we interact with and Mm -hmm. friends and family and then, you know, the healthcare system and um just kind of all the things all the different there's like so many levels and layers to how we how how these things express themselves? Which is, Absolutely, I think super interesting.
0: <laughs> I think just just one more point, at least on my end, is that think about the brain areas involved. So you have the initial release of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, and that's huge. But also, your extended amygdala is involved in withdrawal, and as you know, the amygdala is really important in you know fear response and these primal responses. And so you mentioned that you flip into a survival mode. Well, the reason one feels that way is because the amygdala is actually involved. It's a little bit more complex than that. But if you think about the areas that are being utilized the brain in this circuit, then it makes a little bit more sense as to why this cycle can get out of control.
1: I, I actually I completely didn't know that the amygdala was involved. So, of course, that makes even more sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, <it's>, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> much more involved with the withdrawal portion,
1: mm-hmm. but it's,
0: it's a part of that, it's a part of that cycle. And so that kicks into, that kicks in a lot of emotional response. And that's very powerful.
1: Yes. Our fight or flight and survival. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. See, I'm learning things. I thought I knew these, I, I thought I knew this topic pretty well, but you know, here we go. That's <laughs> why we talk to experts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I talk to experts too, and I'm learning Um, As I go further into addiction medicine as well. All
1: right. Well, um, on that positive note, let's move into our second question. Sounds great. Uh, So if successful, based on the understanding of current research, which biochemical pathway involved in the pathophysiology of addiction was manipulated? And what else does this pathway manage in all humans? So a 33-year-old male with a past medical history of opioid use disorder is entered into a novel treatment program that utilizes biochemical pathway manipulation to curb addictions in five sessions. The requirements for the study are single drug misuse or abuse greater than one year of use and commitment to attend and cooperate with all five treatment sessions. If successful, based on the understanding of current research, which biochemical pathway involved in the pathophysiology of addiction was manipulated and what else does this pathway manage in all humans? So the answer choices are one, SIP E21, Metabolism of All Drugs. Two, Krebs cycle, rewards and motivation. Three, the DYN slash K O P R system for, for mood and motivation. Or four, glycolysis <laughs> and hunger. So what are we thinking for this question? <laughs> this is really
0: asking what pathway is involved and what else does this manage. <laughs> so again, you have two things you're looking for, I would attack it from which pathway is involved. And then you want to make sure that what else it manages lines up with the answer choice. I actually I actually saw a, a little bit of a typo here. It says SIP-E21. It should be SIP-2E1. Um, if we remember the SIP nomenclature, it's always number, letter, number. Really not pertinent, um, but just an FYI. Um, so this, if you think about CYP enzymes, they're involved in drug metabolism. So maybe that's maybe that's a possibility. The Krebs cycle. So that's energy production, right? And we all think <laughs> back to biochemistry, and the Krebs cycle, and you think about that cartoon of the cyclist on the Krebs cycle, and and that pops into my mind. And then we have the dynorphin kappa opioid receptor. That actually sounds really really good um, because. The dynorphin pathway and the kappa opioid receptor are really important in pain control and also mood and motivation. And then our fourth answer choice is glycolysis here. And glycolysis also, again, generates energy. So the best answer to me, based on this, will be the dynorphin and kappa opioid receptor because this signaling pathway is implicated in addiction. Uh, CYP2E1, you might... You might think of this in relation to addiction because this is actually the enzyme that gets upregulated with either binge drinking or chronic alcoholism, but it's not involved in metabolism of all drugs. Um, Drugs go through many different SIP enzymes. And so this may seem like it might sort of be a good answer choice, but it's not. And then the Krebs cycle and glycolysis, they're really involved in energy. So our correct answer here is the dynorphin kappa opioid receptor system, which is Involved in mood and motivation and not listed here, but also uh, pain and nociception.
1: Which makes sense since it's a dynorphine or dynorphin and kappa opioid receptor system. So you'd hope that there's some kind of pain management aspect there in there. <laughs> and things I had no I honestly could not find how to pronounce that. So that works out. I'm glad that you you know. What it
0: is. <laughs> Here's the trick with pronunciation. Just be very confident and then most people will believe you. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes, I rolled into it like, "Oh, I know what this is." <laughs> so there we go. So okay, so that system is very important for opioid receptors and uh-huh. the question stem is about someone who has an opioid use disorder and is in a treatment program for that disorder, and so this this is the receptor you would need to know about. Absolutely,
0: and I think talking about this will be at least a little bit useful to our listeners. There's a lot of interplay involved in here. Uh, kappa opioid receptor is is part of that. It's a really complex interplay with other neurotransmitters. You know, we talked about dopamine earlier, so that's certainly at play we can actually target this receptor with some drugs. Um, So buprenorphine, which you've probably heard about, will hit this receptor along with the mu opioid receptor. Uh, Pentazosine is another one that will target this receptor. And then naloxone and naltrexone also works as an antagonist at the kappa opioid receptor along with the mu opioid receptor. There's been some research on this in addiction. There's been um, also some research on the kappa opioid receptor and pain. It was thought to be a really good pain target. But it turns out when you target this for pain, the patient ends up experiencing hallucinations and feelings of sort of detachment and not really being there. So this target has not been exploited for pain. And this is sort of a, a tread lightly area because although this has know some important physiological effects um if we target this specifically you can have a lot of things that go that go awry so there's there's some really complex interplay there that very active area of research very interesting
1: i mean it sounds like it but dang dissociation and and hallucinating that does not sound like something you'd want tampered with with a uh, like a potential you know cure or something yeah not a fun time <laughs> So interesting. Okay. So I guess our listeners can kind of think of it in the same realm as the mu receptor. So that's something that like, I know that we're familiar with from our medical curriculum. Um, So kind of, we can maybe lump these two together in the understanding of like, okay, these are things that the opioids bind to. Mm -hmm. um, And so they should be areas or like they should be things we think about when uh, we're talking about research on these receptors or that kind of thing. Okay. Absolutely. Yep.
0: And so there, they have some things in common and then they have some things that are very different.
1: <laughs> Understandably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's a great study technique. Um, thinking about things together and understanding what they have in common, but also cementing how, how those things can be different. Right. I think it's very useful when studying and also when practicing.
1: All right. So that's kind of it for our question portion. So is there anything that we didn't kind of touch on or cover in terms of like the neurobiology of addiction um, that you think it would be useful for, you know, medical students and whatever other kind of medical professional is listening to our podcast um, should kind of know or be aware of?
0: I think the one thing I did want to mention is in our second question, um, they mentioned drug misuse or abuse. And I think the field is trying to get away from the term abuse because it's some pejorative language. And we want to get away from that in order to be more inclusive and accepting of our patients. Um, because when we're thinking about patients who suffer with who suffer from drug misuse, they're often marginalized populations, or there's a very large stigma associated with, with some of these disorders. So I think using the most inclusive. And I, I don't know if gentle is the right word. Mm-hmm. But I think being mindful of the language that we're using when we discuss these issues is incredibly, incredibly important. It's going to make all the difference when you're treating your patients and you're establishing the relationship with the patients. So, that's that's one thing I want to bring up. But I think it's really important to know the brain regions that are involved. So the basal ganglia and the nucleus accumbens is really important. We mentioned the extended amygdala. And then the prefrontal cortex is also really important as well, as we saw from that question stem. And remember the prefrontal cortex has that interplay with the striatum, and that changes from in development. So when you're born to when you're an adult, the interplay between the striatum and the prefrontal cortex changes. Um, So if you're treating someone who's a little bit younger, for example, um, there may be different sort of pathways at play potentially than in someone who's, who's much older, just something to think about. And then as for the chemicals that are involved, dopamine is a big player, but there are also other neurotransmitters involved, of course, and we mentioned the, the Kappa opioid receptors. You can see now trexone being used for things like alcohol use disorder. and now trexone is involved in a combination for weight loss now as well. And so there's something going on with that opioid system, opioid system, that enters into addiction, and it could be through this Kappa opioid receptor what exactly that circuit is, I think is a little bit up in the air, but it's something to really watch moving forward as newer and newer treatments are coming out.
1: That is like so interesting, especially because we know that there's not just addictive behaviors around drugs of choice. You know, there's Mm -hmm. also addictive behaviors when it comes to eating, which is probably why now Trexone, um, working on this system may Mm -hmm. be a benefit. Um, wow. That's just, I just, that's, I know I said that's so interesting probably a gazillion times this episode, but it's, it's, it really is something interesting to think about and be aware of um, as you know, more research is done and new treatments are kind of brought down the pipeline for us to use. Well, and Amy, you brought up a really great point. So we think of
0: drugs of misuse, but there's also gambling addiction, there's internet gaming addiction food addiction is huge, Uh, hypersexuality. There's so many different types of addiction. It's not just limited to substances. And so I think that's really important to understand. Mm -hmm.
1: And a lot of times I think kind of circling back to the using misuse as opposed to abuse, Mm -hmm. a lot of this isn't, so, so our dopamine system, you know, does that, um, Kind of like it's the thing that tells us to drink water. It's the thing mm-hmm. that tells us to um, procreate. It's the thing that tells us mm-hmm. to enjoy our food. And so, when these systems kind of go out of whack, mm-hmm. it's not really the person who's choosing to do these things. Like it's really their body that's screaming at them, like, "Hey, you have to do this because I need the dopamine. Because the dopamine is the thing that reminds me, like, I'm doing this for survival." Mm-hmm. Um, And so we really should remove the stigma. And, and so like for future, our future providers, you know, you Mm -hmm. will have individuals who are suffering some kind of addictive issue Mm -hmm. and, you know, they are going to have behavioral traits that will really upset you and irritate you. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, you can't take it as that's their personality or that's their, um, you know, they don't want actually, they don't actually want help. It's no, like that's actually like a behavior stemming from this process that's going on inside of them. And so you have to also kind of have empathy and have that understanding that like them blowing you off or them kind of slipping and, um, you know, taking a step back. Like that's, that's part of the disease process and it's not them. Um So I, I really, I just wanted to like highlight that and be like, hey, you know, like These things that will frustrate you, um, that's actually part of the disease process. And it's not, they're not like intentionally doing these things to you or to their family or to society. It's, this is part of the disease process. You know, neurochemicals that are going a little AWOL in their brain.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I'll use myself as an example. I have a family history of addiction and I don't struggle with any substances, but I do enjoy my food. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, it's, it's a little bit of a coping mechanism for some people. And if you think about the stress that COVID-19 has brought upon everyone, people want to escape. And I honestly can't say I blame them for them. So I've been eating some extra Girl Scout cookies. And you know I'm overweight. It's a, It's impacting my health, right? But sometimes I just cannot stop myself from getting that next Girl Scout cookie. It's delicious. It makes me feel good. And, but then I do feel bad afterwards, right? So it's a vicious cycle. But here's the thing. Uh, I have excellent access to healthcare. I can talk to my therapist about this. I have knowledge about what this is and, and how to go about getting around this. I have access to a weight loss plan, which is not cheap. Um, I have excellent insurance. I have wonderful friends, family who are here for me and support me. And I have enough money to buy healthy foods. Right? Not everybody has all of that. And many people are missing at least one component that's required for successful treatment. And even then, my weight loss is so slow. So I just want to use that as an example that I have a very easy road and I'm still struggling with eating sugar. I love sugar. And,
1: doesn't. <laughs> and
0: a lot of people do, right? It gives me dopamine. I feel good. It's not not that far away. It's one step away from a heroin user, right? Mm-hmm. It's a different substance, but a lot of the psychology is the same. A lot of the recovery involves some of the sort of same components mm-hmm. and you have to have access you have to have resources, and you have to have knowledge. And that needs to be made more available. And I think that saying that, oh, it's so easy, you can just stop using it, it's not. Even with all the resources in the world, it's not easy. It really isn't. It's such a powerful drive. Such a powerful drive. I hope that this position, and positions in is more listen to this. Here's this and has a little bit more understanding what the patients might be going through. And, and in no way is my sugar addiction anywhere close to what someone struggling with heroin is going through. But it's a little bit of an example of how powerful it can be and how much you need to overcome that.
1: Well, thank you so much for um, sharing that. I'm really grateful that you have all of those tools and resources and... Me too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... uh And that you have, I mean, such like a strong, you know, knowledgeable background on kind of like the, you know, it's almost easier to face something when you really understand what's going on. I mean, you still have to deal with the, you know, the pull and the, you know, the drive that your brain is, you know, kind of telling you about. But
0: yeah, and a lot of patients don't have that privilege. A lot of them don't. I, I outlined for you a whole lot of privilege. And many patients don't have that. Mm
1: -hmm. And like you said, if any one of those things is missing, it Mm -hmm. just makes it a whole heck of a lot harder. And just imagine Mm -hmm. if you have a lot of those pieces missing, be even worse. So I think the end of this is just kind of, you know, be compassionate. I know Mm -hmm. that we, especially when we're dealing with addiction, it can be hard to maintain compassion and to Mm -hmm. maintain uh, our understanding. But Mm -hmm. um you know, kind of stories like yours and kind of really understanding all of these different layers that individuals have to almost fight against should really resonate with our listeners. I think it really resonated with me. <laughs> Resonates with me too. That's why I'm here. Oh, thank you so much. So I think that's going to be the conclusion of this episode, but you are going to be back uh, with us soon to work on another episode. So thank you so much, Dr. Allen. My pleasure. So excited to be here. Alrighty, well, um, look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good.